We continue to worship the Lord as we read from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We start our verse-by-verse study through this epistle together right now. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. By God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would um, work in such a way that the words we've just read and the words that follow through First Peter are increasingly precious to us as the days go by. And as we are almost home, life is just a vapor, I pray you would increasingly help us to know where our hope really is and what we really have in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of course, you may be seated and uh, keep First Peter there open in front of you. There are moments when they happen in your life, you know as they happen, you'll never forget them happening or where you were when they, when they happened. First moment for me like that was when the spaceship Challenger uh, exploded, or space shuttle Challenger exploded. I was just a child, six or seven years old, but I can remember standing in my living room. I can almost see the details for, uh, for what they were, carpet color, television, and when that moment had happened, or, or, or yesterday as we remember the 20th anniversary of 9-11, I, I'm sure most everybody in the room can say where you were, what was going on, when you heard the news. Uh, it was 20 years ago, Julie and I were just married that June and living in Memphis, Tennessee. I was in seminary. In fact, that Tuesday morning, I had just taken my first ever exam. It was a Greek exam in seminary, and I'd gone to the library, and someone came in and said, an airplane just struck the World Trade Center. I immediately thought it was a terrible accident, went out to my car, turned on the radio, and was listening to the news bulletin when the second plane came crashing. We were dismissed from school that day and following a prayer service. And like many others, I went home and spent the day watching the events unfold. And on that day and right up to this day, I'm so affected, so affected by those who went in to help. Those who are first responders, who, who go in and keep stepping forward when there has to be a huge impulse internally to turn around. It takes a lot of courage, doesn't it, to put somebody before yourself. And as we open the book of First Peter, he begins it this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... Uh, Peter, we're given more detailed information about in the New Testament than just about anybody else, save maybe the Apostle Paul and, of course, Jesus himself. In fact, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter is referenced more times than anybody save Jesus. And I take that to mean here's the Savior who saves people like this, like Peter. 
Because one of the defining traits of Peter's life is that he frequently put himself first. The the apostles would often argue about which of them was the greatest. Peter often spoke first. Uh, Peter did most everything first. And you'll, you'll remember that Peter was the one who was most adamant on the night that Jesus was betrayed, saying that he would follow and stick with Jesus even if everybody else fled. And here we have him opening this epistle uh, 30-some-odd years after the crucifixion of Jesus, saying that he represents somebody else. And I think it's helpful for you to, 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 to kind of gauge whether or not you view your life that way. Now here's the story of Peter. Peter believed Messiah had come and Messiah had arrived to establish what Peter already thought needed doing in the world, right? That the Messiah had arrived, and yes, it was Jesus, but Jesus' point of coming was doing what Peter thought already needed doing in the world. And friends, if we're honest, most of us approach the Lord that way too. In fact, if we're not careful, we begin to judge the goodness of God and the character of God on the basis of Him carrying out in the world what we think should be done. And we need to be crucified to that. No one can follow me unless he take up his cross to do so. And as Peter begins this message, he is is writing a group of people who are suffering. At that time and place to be a Christian was of no worldly advantage. He He addresses them this way, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, those places are written in an order that if you were traveling the road back in that time, that's the, those are the ways you would approach the places. It's sort of like saying if you crossed uh, uh, South Carolina into North Carolina on I-95 and you come to Lumberton, Fayetteville, Smithfield, or Wilson, Rocky Mount. That's the order that you would travel. That's the order that it's written there. It's a road that Peter himself had traveled and gone to these places. So the good news for us is that the gospel and the things of the Lord are for real people in the real world. That's who he's writing. And they are suffering. This primarily uh, people who come from a Jewish background who at one time had been captive in Babylon. Now you know that a good number of people returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, but not all the Jewish people did. Some settled in other places, in places like Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But now, though coming from a Jewish background, they've come to faith in Christ. By and large, through the, through the apostling of Peter, proclaiming the good news. But what that means within the world that they live in is that they're outcasts. They've got no power. They've got, got, got no influence. They, they have no, no wealth. And so maybe I'd ask it to you this way. If you were speaking to someone enduring great suffering, what would you say? What would you emphasize? If there's somebody that you love and they're enduring suffering, what would your advice be? Where would you begin? Or when, not if, but when you suffer, where do your thoughts turn? What voice do you listen to? Because we're never more vulnerable than when we suffer. And the decisions you make, what you really choose to do in the midst of hardship are some of the most important decisions you'll ever make. So Peter, as he writes to people he loves and cares about in the midst of their suffering, guess what he talks about first? He talks about God first. He talks about who God is and what he has done first. Now, uh, in the face of 
hardship and uncertainty, Peter focuses on the Lord. So uh, just maybe a uh, um, thought process or, uh, or, or whatnot. Let's make a pie chart out of your thoughts. You know what a pie chart is, right? So you got a pie chart, and it's going to represent your thoughts, and then you're going to break it down into certain categories. What's the largest slice of the, slice of the pie? I almost said slice of the pice, but that didn't make sense. What's the largest? Now I've confused myself. Let's just, what do you think about most? I encourage you to make the largest category on your pie chart thinking rightly about God. I want to think rightly about God. And as you do so, those other categories, anxiety, worry, anger, lust, self, will helpfully diminish. So from the first five verses, let's pull three points. And first of all, see this, that God has blessed you with the greatest spiritual condition possible. God has blessed you with the greatest spiritual condition possible. Now, Paul, uh, Peter, rather, as he's writing, he's writing to followers of Jesus. Nothing can be added to your salvation to make it greater than it already is. And what we most need is not to learn uh, something new, but to learn more about what, how we've been made new in Christ. So, so life is hard for Peter's original audience. Rome rules. They're not wealthy. They're not powerful. They're not influential. In fact, Peter uses three words to describe them. Elect, exiles of the dispersion. When you were a child, did you ever do one of these picture things where one of these things is not like the other? Elect, exiles of the dispersion. Chosen, yet dispersed. Isn't that a strange thing to say that they are chosen by God and yet are exiles? Yet for Peter, it's no trouble at all. In fact, for Peter, not only is it right and regular to think of them as chosen by God and not therefore at home in the world, it is the true state of all followers of Jesus then and now. But then notice how Peter, as he writes to them, describes them first in line with their spiritual condition. The most important aspects of your life are spiritual. In fact, all of life ultimately is spiritual. But notice that Peter calls them exiles. You know what an exile is, right? An exile is not a person without a home. An exile is a person on their way home. And that's why we've kind of entitled the whole series of 1 Peter, Heading Home. You're not home yet. Love that song. We're not home yet, but we will be home soon. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have to reckon every single day that this is not your home. And right here in these verses, verse 2 and 3, we see... God described as Father, Spirit, and Son. It's all right there. God the Father, He chose you before you were sanctified. I think it's helpful to get this order correctly. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Did God choose you before you were sanctified? Yes. This is helpful because sometimes we get the order opposite. Chose you, is sanctifying you, you're becoming obedient. We sometimes think I have to obey God for Him to choose me. That's not what the Bible says, though, is it? 
It's a little bit like this. I had to go up in the attic and get out my winter glove. The weather's cooling off, but it's not quite there yet. So here's, here's, a, here's my winter glove. Break it out when it snows. I always love it when it snows. But, but think about it this way. Can I now say to that glove, make a snowball? Of course not. What if I started getting frustrated with that glove that it's not making a snowball? You say, that would be crazy. Friends, you don't have it in you to even want to obey God until he's made you his own. It's not in you. You you can save yourself a lot of frustration in expecting people to obey the things of God when they don't know God. But when the life comes in you, uh uh-oh, it's kind of tight. I'm not going to be able to get this thing off. I'm going to have to preach the rest of the morning with this. My hand's already sweating. Now can I make a... I can wave. I can give you a thumbs up. I can... Now there's life in the glove, so to speak. Does that make sense? That's what Peter is saying. The testimony of Peter's life is not that he did a good job of obeying Jesus. The testimony of his life is that Jesus loved him eternally. It's true for you as well. You can't have a greater spiritual condition than what we have in Christ. So here's your spiritual condition. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're loved by God the Father, you're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and you're becoming more obedient to the Son. That's your identity. That's who you are. You're loved by the Father, sanctified, being sanctified by the Spirit, which means He's changing you, transforming you. You're becoming more and more like Christ in order to be obedient to Him. And obedient is not drudgery, it's joy now, if you have come to faith in Christ. Now, we also get this reference here for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, what does that mean, sprinkling with his blood? Well, remember, the audience that Peter is writing in these places, Cappadocia and Galatia and so on, primarily come from a Jewish background. So they knew immediately what this meant from the Day of Atonement. When the sacrifice's blood was shed, then the blood was sprinkled. On the mercy seat. And so it's a picture of, yes, Christ's blood has been shed for you. Amen? Christ's blood has been shed for you, but sprinkling is when the blood that was shed gets applied, maybe we might say it, personally. So here's good news for you. Number one, Jesus has shed his perfect blood. And the shed blood of Jesus is the only thing that can cover your sins. But now the blood that has been shed can show up in your real real life. Because you have real sins. This is not theory. This is real stuff. Now, sprinkling with his blood. The shed blood of Jesus has not just done, been done in general. It's now being specifically applied to the exiles who are on their way home. The result? What I'm calling the greatest spiritual condition possible. We were lost, now we're found. We were dead, now we're alive. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't take bad people and make them good. The Holy Spirit takes dead people and makes them alive. We were riding back from soccer practice this week, and Julie has this little thing on her phone that gives her like a vocabulary word of the day. And so this popped up. I'd never heard this word, but I was preparing this sermon. I said, that sounds like a word that is uh, right in line with what we're talking about. It's a Welsh word. Anybody from Wales? I didn't think so. I thought just maybe. Anybody speak Welsh? It's a Welsh word. And I'm probably going to botch how you're supposed to enunciate it. But I think it kind of goes like this. Hiraeth. Anybody know what that word means? Hiraeth. I don't have a Welsh accent. Here's what the word means. Here's what I read about the word. 
a Welsh word that is somewhat difficult to describe in English for the reason that there is no English word that expresses all that it does. Some words in English used to try to explain it are homesickness, yearning, longing. This kind of homesickness is like a combination of the homesickness, longing, nostalgia, and yearning for a home you cannot return to that no longer exists or maybe never was. It can also include grief or sadness for those who, uh, that you've lost, losses which make your home not the same as the one you remember. Hereath. I had a YouTube video come up about commercials from the 80s. And immediately I had Hereath. Longing for a land that is gone. Or, or, or maybe you have Hereath for your grandma's kitchen. You know what I mean? Man, if I could just go back. So I almost entitled this sermon... Hodeeth hope. This is what Peter's talking about. Do you have that? Longing. Now, Hodeeth refers to a homesickness for a home you might, maybe that never was or, or that you can't give. That's not our hope. We've got a living hope according to verse 3. Hodeeth hope. I am on my way home. Do you have a longing in your soul to be home? Well, you've got to. The best way to, to, to fight trying to be at home in this world is to be convinced you're on your, your way home. Second point is that God is able to multiply grace and peace to you. I just love that. Uh, it's not a little tagline. It's not just a little throw-in statement. Peter is really saying, he's really praying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, I'll tell you at the deepest levels of your soul, what you really most want and need are grace and peace. And they always come in that order. So much of the frustration that you'll experience is wanting peace apart from, from grace. Now, what is grace? Grace is the unmerited and free favor of God. Friends, we are reading a letter inspired of the Holy Spirit written by a man who not once, not twice, three times said, I don't even know who Jesus is as Jesus is on trial. It's grace. Friends, you think you've gone too far, done too much. You don't understand grace. Grace is the unmerited and free favor of God. It's the pardoning and saving work of God which is offered in Christ. He really did shed his blood and his shed blood can be applied to you, to all of your sins, all of your iniquity. None of them are greater than his blood's power to redeem. You are really fully forgiven when you turn to Jesus asking him to do for you what he came to do. Friends, if you could work your way out of the mess that we've created, then Jesus would not have needed to come. But he says, I've come to seek and save the lost. Has that happened to you? He sought you out. He found you. He claimed you as his own. And these blessings, if you really believe that, that God has restored you, man, your life is defined by peace. So who's going to snatch that from you? Who's going to take that from you? Notice the emphasis. The foreknowledge of God, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. It's, it's His work. So in order for you to lose your salvation, somebody greater than God has to come along and, and undo what God has done, which is another way of saying it won't ever happen. But the grace that God has extended to you through Christ proves even deeper than you understand it at first. The, the peace you enjoy in knowing is wider than you knew at the first. Isn't that true? 
for a follower of Jesus. These aren't stagnant blessings, grace and peace. They are things that multiply. So I hope as you mature as a follower of Jesus, your appreciation and gratitude for grace and peace are not lessening over time, but they're growing and multiplying. And notice when Peter starts talking about God, his theology leads to doxology. Do you know what that means? His right thinking about God leads to him to praise God. So, um, man, you ought to not have right doctrine, right theology, and not praise the Lord. I I mean, it's not something, uh, well, look at the words that he uses. Man, you're rejoicing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. So that brings us to the third point that we get right here is that God in mercy gives us a living hope. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. You can't get more secure than that. Notice the living hope that we have through being born again. Who caused it? God did. God is the one who causes you to be born again. We don't cause it. If you caused it, you could uncause it. But since you didn't, you can't. Anybody here cause yourself to be born? Anybody in the room say, uh, you know what, I just up and decided that I was going to enter the world. No, no, you were born not because you called yourself out of nothing into something. It was not caused by me. What does it mean to be born again? Let me ask you this question. If somebody came to you today, it may not happen, but hey, I've had it happen. And somebody simply stood before you and said, what does it mean to be born again? What would you say? How would you explain it? Here in kindness is how I don't want you to explain it. There was a time in my life I walked down the aisle. I know what people mean when they say that. Or I joined a church. Is that what it means to be born again? How about we ask it this way? According to this verse, what does it mean to be born again? This is really helpful for the scripture to inform us of our understanding of God and the important things of the Lord. Everybody look at me. To be born again means you have a new hope. It means what you really hope in has changed. Has that happened to you? Can we talk about it for a moment? This happens because of God's mercy. In mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So I can tell you emphatically, nobody's life changes but on the basis of their hope changing. So when you were born physically, you're born with a hope. Can we talk about some of the common hopes? Here's how you know what your hope really is. Let's ask this question. You fill in this blank. My life will be so much better if... Now you fill in the blank, and I want you to be honest about it. My life would be so much better if... Or my life will be so much better when... Or my life was so much better when. Now you fill in the blank, and you're getting real close to what your hope is. What is hope? Hope is an expectation. Hope is a desire. 
Hope is what you believe really will satisfy your desires. You've got deep desires, don't you? For meaning. Man, I want my life to mean something for love, for significance. That God made you that way. So what is it that you believe will actually satisfy your deepest desires? Those are the things you're hoping in. You know, we often say that the, that the heart is the seat of the emotions. And that's true to a degree. But you know what the heart really is? The heart is the seat of your hopes. It's what you build your life on. Believing this is what will satisfy me. Now here's the spiritual condition of a whole lot of people. We have hopes we were born with. Because God made you this way, you're always going to have this. But now sin's entered the world and it's twisted our hopes all up so that all of our hopes now are self-centered. I think my life would be better if I had more money. I think my life would be better if I didn't have these physical challenges. I think my life would be better when I retire. I think my life would be better if this group of people would stop doing this, 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 that's, that's how we are. So, so now our hopes have been all twisted up and now we project on God our self-centered hopes and determine his goodness and character on the basis of him fulfilling our hopes, which is something he never said he was going to do. Not fulfill our selfish, sinful hopes, but he has promised that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. In the early years of your life, even if you believe in God, we set our hopes in the things of this world. Can we start putting some things together? You're exiles. So the last thing a follower of Jesus should do is be putting their hope. I mean, I mean, so many people are just so frustrated. They keep saying, man, this world doesn't feel like my home. It's not. It's not. Well, things would be so much better if. Now, let me pause here. Christ crucified, buried resurrected soon to come there is no more if added to that because that's the only living hope jesus christ from the dead you hold it some other hope it's a killing hope it's killing you because you keep trying to base your joy and life on something other than in christ you have the greatest spiritual condition possible. What more could you want than that? So when we have false hopes, we begin to make commitments to things. And I'll just tell you this. Sometimes you get what you hoped for. You get the promotion. You get into that school. You get her to say yes to go out on the date. And then it doesn't make you as happy as you thought it would. And that creates a crisis, doesn't it? So you do a couple of things. Most commonly you decide, oh, I just was hoping in the wrong thing. And the fulfillment is still out there somewhere. Or you get really angry. And you start to say, well, everybody's holding me back for what I really hope in. My circumstances, my family. And then you just get really mad. Or you get a half truth and say, none of these things, none of, none of this is going to satisfy me. And you just become cynical. And you say, man, life doesn't have any meaning. 
You just sort of get jaded and sarcastic about everything. There are many, many killing hopes. There's one living hope. Do you know what happens if your hope is in money or wealth or health or finding the right person to marry or moving to a different geographical location or earning that degree? None of those are necessarily bad things. They're just terrible things to build your hope on. Amen? Notice what Peter says about the living hope in Christ. You're born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Can we talk about the human condition for a moment? Our frustration comes in the wrong hope in the wrong place, and those hopes defile, fade, and perish. All the other hopes, that's what happens. And then, and then, if we can just keep talking, God is guarding the living hope, but if you have a false hope, as it defiles and perishes, you start to fight back. Notice verse 5, God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here's the human condition. Everybody's up guarding their false hopes by my power. You try to take that from me, you're crazy. It's on. And that happens in small realm of relationships to the human condition on planet Earth. Because now i got to fight you because you're coming at my false hope. But Christ has come against your false hope because he loves you. And Peter had some false hopes. Study his life. I do too. But if your hope is in Christ, you have an inheritance that will never perish. Never becomes defiled or spoils is kind of the thought. Doesn't ever fade. Everything that's of the world perishes, defiles, or fades. But when you have a living hope in Christ, God himself is guarding that hope. How did we get it? By grace. What does it lead to? Peace that multiplies. You know, that's what made the early church so perplexing to the Roman world. In the Roman world, they esteemed military might. They esteemed monetary wealth. (laughs) They esteemed power and influence. And then they run across this uninfluential ragtag of people in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Man, if we're not careful... If we're not careful, as the American church, we'll start building our hopes in the wrong places and then get really angry and frustrated when God doesn't bring those false hopes to pass. But these followers of Jesus though they had none of those things, look at their influence and impact. You know, the only way to really influence the world for Christ is to conclude that the world is not your home. Uh, One more point, but it's so helpful. Do do you know, um, probably in your lifetime, what will be the best revealer of your hope? It's written right here. You want to know what your hope really is? So we talk about theory. We can talk about... You know, generalities. Just listen to what Peter says. In this you rejoice. What are we rejoicing in? The hope we have in Christ. We're going to be almost home. Praise God Almighty. In this you rejoice, though now, right now, for a little while, 
you have been grieved by various trials. That'll tell you what your hope is pretty fast. You know what your hope is? And when things are hard, difficult, the unexpected came. It'll reveal to you that you had false hopes you didn't know you had. But let's get the whole thing. Though this, you, you grieve. So that, it's helpful to know that suffering isn't purposeless. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold that perishes. So, see, it's better to have a genuine faith than a, a, a billion dollars. Is this going to perish? May result in... may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what didn't make sense to the Romans about the early church. They got nothing, but they're so joyful. How is that? Last point to make is, uh, as suffering tests whether your faith is genuine or not, when life doesn't go the way you think it would, or no matter what turns life takes, we are headed home, amen? Suffering also reminds us that I'm not home yet. But let me say one last thing about these opening verses. You see the word that the whole epistle begins with? Peter. And, and, and now I just want you, just one more time, let's read the passage together. We'll actually go all the way to verse 9. I just want you to see this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested, tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold which perishes, may be found, uh, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. One time, my name's Peter. And then he just talks about Jesus over and over and over. In fact, the only reference to himself is in relation to his relationship to Jesus. I'm Peter, but I'm an apostle of Jesus. His letter is saturated with Jesus because his life is saturated by the grace that he has in Christ. So Peter trusts that his inheritance is imperishable because Jesus went to the cross and perished. Peter believes that his inheritance is undefiled because Jesus took on everything that defiles at the cross. So let it land on you, I pray, by God's grace. The one who guards our inheritance is the one who guarantees our inheritance. The one guarding it is the one who's provided it. So, don't quit. Don't despair. Don't withdraw into a cocoon of anger and complaint and frustration. Don't begin to think that my life would be better if, or my life would be better when, or my life was better back then. Our hope is in something greater than all the kingdoms of the world could offer. Our hope. Remember, we, 
we begin with saying problems are solved by people. Our problem of a lack of peace has been solved by the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. He is our living hope. So, my concluding conclusion, because I know I've used that word about five times now. What are you hoping in? What are you really hoping in? Uh, You can't change a person's life without changing their hope. And you can't be born again without being born again to a living hope. Let's stand together. We'll pray together. And then we'll have a time of response and invitation. It's another, this is another moment not to, not to uh, neglect. Don't neglect your soul right here, right now. The keeper of your soul is the Lord. So allow him, allow him to search you and know, know you. Use his word, right, to build your life on. So, Father, I pray in Jesus' name, I think it would be an amazing work of your spirit to use the word of God to reveal to us some false hopes that we're building our life on. Lord, give us grace to be like this early church. That though they lack so many worldly possessions, they had a hope that the world could never give them. Father, I pray that you'd help us understand that in this world we live as exiles. We are not home yet. But we won't walk our way home grumbling or complaining, we will walk our way home by grace. You with us every step of the way. I pray what Peter prayed. May grace and peace be multiplied in this church family. It may be the sanctification of the Spirit which leads to obedience to Jesus Christ who is our hope. We pray this in His name. Amen.